This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. Today's show is sponsored by SoFi. Refinancing student loans with SoFi saves you an average of $19,000. It's a lot of money. Members also get access to free career services and coaching that really shouldn't be free. Find out more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Today's show is also sponsored by Mac Weldon. These guys make awesome hoodies, underwear, sweatpants. I'm wearing the socks right now. It's raining outside. It's miserable. I'm wet. I'm not uncomfortable. You know why, Brian? Why? I got these awesome socks on. Plus, they look good. You're kind of a dapper fellow. You're a fashion guy. What do you think? You approve? They're pretty cool. Thank you. Brian Lamb approves. Wire cutters. Brian Lamb approves of my Mac Weldon socks. Not are, an official endorsement. Sorry. You said it on air. They're, they're naturally antimicrobial, whether Brian wants to admit it or not, which means I also smell good right now as I'm speaking to you. You can wear them in the rain to go interview Brian Lamb on your podcast. They're easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off with the recode promo code. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. If for some reason you don't like these socks or the sweatpants or whatever you buy from Mac Weldon, keep them. Mac Weldon will send you your money back. Go to MacWeldon.com. 20% off with the promo code RECODE. Brian Lamb from The Wirecutter. How you doing? I'm good. I'm just surprised. Your voice got super smooth. Now yeah, this podcast. buttery because I got to sell stuff. You don't have to sell stuff. You are not in the ad business, you, but yet you have a successful media business. It's crazy. How'd you do that? I don't know. I started with the content first and kind of the service first. And I know that's not the approach. Like I went to this conference maybe last year and it was the secret conference where everyone was going to share uh, revenue tips. It's all business heads. What's the media secret companies. conference? I don't know. I can't tell you about it. Was there a password? Yeah, I don't know. Was don't it somewhere know. cool? I can't t- tell you, you were anything there. about this. I was there. Did you pay to go? You know what? I paid because I wanted to support them and I did my own housing and I spoke. And everyone was talking about business without talking about content. And I went up there and I was like, I'm not like you guys. I have a content background. I think about what readers want. And I do that first and then I design the other stuff. It's just a view is not a view. Like if you're designing business for features, that has to be different than news in my mind. But for some reason, the world doesn't work that way. Well, it's working for you. So before we get deep into philosophy, let's talk about what it is that you do, what Wirecutter is. You tell me what it is and then then I'll see if that explanation makes sense. To someone who's never heard of you or Wirecutter before, what is Wirecutter? What do you do there? Wirecutter is formed around this idea, and the idea is that shopping really sucks. It's really stressful. It takes a lot of time. And if you do it well, those are the outcomes. That's like part of the symptom of doing it well is that you're taking a lot of time to research, and then you're kind of agonizing over choices. And the truth is it doesn't need to be that way. Um, you know, I think that the Wirecutter and the Sweet Home, which is our home site, Wirecutter being the technology site, it's a list of things that you should buy, that we it's think a guide. you should buy. It's a guide. It's best TV, best laptop. Yes, and it's like the best TV for $1,000 or $500. And this is the one we think you should get after 80 hours of research, testing, interviewing. And it's not a experts. list of 10 TVs, and here's the different kinds. You say, buy this one. We say buy this one or this one if that one's sold out because we sell out a lot of stuff. And so I go to Wirecutter. I go to Sweet Home if I want to buy a dishwasher or a blender. You guys tell me what to buy. I buy it. How do you make money? Because you don't have any ads on your site. And it's free, right? Yeah, it's free. It's not subscription-based. And before we get into how we make money, I think the key difference that I'd like to point out is if you go and you say, like, I want you to go find which TV to get and do it with confidence and speed and not a lot of stress and sort of like decision-making paralysis, you can take an hour on your own or more if you're really into research, or you can just look at our site and get that advice in like five minutes or less. 
Right. And you guys write these obsessive thousand word articles, multiple thousands of words about why you picked this TV and why you picked this TV or that TV and its pros and cons. So I could read all of that if I want. It would take me half an hour we to read some of We don't bury the lead, though. It's just right in the first paragraph. It's up there, right? So, yeah. so the idea is I have the confidence that the crazy people who spent thousands of words on this TV explaining this TV to me know what they're doing. I just go and buy it. Right. And so, like, you know, our entire company is built on about a thousand pieces of content, which is, like, kind of crazy. You know, like, why some companies do that a week. And... Written it's, by humans, right? Yeah, no, written no by bots. Humans. There's and no bots. You're and, not crowdsourcing this stuff? Right. You're and paying so, people to write this? And so to your question about the business model, like, you really can't... If you were to sell ads against those pages, it's just impossible to get the scale you need. But we focus on doing something that will help people. We look at ourselves as utility. So if you're a utility, you're going to measure for how helpful you are to people. And the more helpful we are and the better our work is, the more people use our guides. And the more people that use our guides, the more they tell their friends. It's kind of common sense. And every time someone buys something that we recommend on our site, we get a couple bucks. Because they click on a link that sends them to Amazon or Best Buy, and then Amazon or Best Buy gives you a couple dollars. Yes, which is referred to as affiliate. And if I look and I browse, but I don't buy that day and I walk into Best Buy or I go to Amazon some other time, you guys get squat, right? There are some rules around that that are not really worth getting into. Sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. That's not really my job to worry about. I just make sure we're doing good work and along with our editor-in-chief, Jackie Chang. And then it just works out in the end. Like a couple of our guides, we don't recommend anything. We're like, don't get anything from here. They're all bad. Some of our guides, we don't have any... Uh, affiliate agreements in place and we don't make any money on them but in the end it kind of works out and like the spirit of it is just at the macro level shopping sucks this is the shortcut we believe in it enough to use it ourselves and spend our time working on it and we're pretty sure you'll tell your friends once you have that experience there's another version of what you do right it's consumer reports that's a subscription service generally Um, but it's the same sort of idea except there's no affiliate link there right it's true but i think from a user perspective like when you go to Consumer Reports and we work with them, we really like them. The world needs Consumer Reports. I didn't try to design another Consumer Reports. I feel like their experience, they have a lot of circles and dots. Do you know what the circles, dots and red dots and black dots? I think if dots. it's a full circle, it's good, right? You think, but you don't really know. No. And so they have a list of things that like 20 things they kind of recommend. Yeah. But, and it's really hard to tell which one to get. Ours is more conversational, like this podcast. Yeah. You know, it's like... We could, someone could write a white paper on Wirecutter, but isn't the conversational version about it, like the, podca- the Peter Kafka Smooth Voice podcast, it's probably Smooth the most jazz. easy way to digest that. And, and also, right, I push you to just say actually what it is. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the great thing about Wirecutter, right? Again, there's, there's thousands of words, so the, the nerd, nerds team that built this stuff, I trust them, but I don't really care what they said on the 555th word. Maybe I do, yep. but I just want to buy the TV. Right. And you guys told me which TV to buy. It's a great TV. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the best part about Wirecutter is that you've, we've collected this group of people that care enough about helping people to do this very torturous type of work. It's really hard work. There's easier ways to make a living, but people do it because they believe in it and they have a, this curiosity to figure out like what mattress is the best, even though you know certain brands have more advertising dollars to spam your Facebook feed. You know, which one is really the best? It's hard to figure that out as a, someone with not a lot of resources. So you're here at an interesting time in media because there's been a big ad boom. There's been a big uh, venture capital boom that's gone into media. People thought, oh, we're, we're going to make a lot of money as, as advertising come, whatever, I'm going to spare you the backstory. The point is there's a lot of folks who are now suddenly interested in diversifying their media business and adding on a commerce component. It used to work at Gawker Media. 
They're adding a lot of affiliate links and diversifying that way. I think a lot of other folks either want to copy what you're doing or maybe they just want to buy you. I mean, do you find a lot of folks knocking on your door who want to have conversations about M&A or partnerships or whatever? Yeah, people are always knocking. And, um, you know, the interesting thing is that we offer our research and syndicated versions of our articles for free for any publisher that we feel like is a good cultural fit. And it's really good because we can, you know, sometimes we rev split, sometimes we don't. You guys have done stuff with the New York Times, right? Yeah, we have this New York Times collaboration where it's a true collaboration. I said, no business involved because, you know, that would take a long time for them to run it up the flagpole. And I said, just treat us like a freelancer because the old tech columnist there was kind of lazy. Like, he would write this thing on printers and he'd be like, there is no way to figure out what the best cheap printer is. But like, we actually did it and it just took us, you know, 100 man hours, which I don't know why, if you're the New York Times, you deserve that level of heat. You deserve to have the definitive piece on cheap printers. And so we said, you know what, you do your column thing because there's a lot of real world service that Brian X. Chen, it was his idea. He writes the column at the Times. He's not the lazy section. one you're disparaging. No, okay. he's the very hardworking, smart one. So, And he was like, you know what, if I'm going to spend all this time researching what makes Wi-Fi routers suck, why don't we pair that with your 200-hour article on which Wi-Fi router to get? And so you have this one-two punch that's very rarely seen in column format because of, you know, as an signing editor, people just don't have that much time to write these things. You can't like do the real world stuff plus figure out what router to get. So back to the media landscape, there's a lot of folks looking around going, all right, the, the ad rates are going down, we're nervous about ad rates. Sure seems like what Brian is doing is, is a good idea. Why don't, why don't we either copy that or why don't we buy Brian or maybe do both? Well, before we get there, I just want to say that this piece that we did and the follow-up piece, which was on smartphone batteries, they were like some of the most powerful pieces that the Times had seen in that section. And I think people really respond to being helped. It's much more powerful and interesting to me than news. And, you know, I don't follow a lot of news because it's just like blah, 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 blah. All right. So I run the New York Times. I'm going to go, you know what? This is great. And it's great that Wirecutter showed us how to do this. We're going to go do it ourselves. Seems pretty easy. This guy, Brian Lamb, used to be a blogger. He's running a business out of Hawaii. It can't be that hard. You know what's really funny is that business people these days, because of the internet, are so seduced by the idea of scale. They're like, why would we have humans do that when we could have a computer do it? crowdsource it but like why would we do long-form features or when we could just have gazillions of blog posts that make so much more money and they you know an ad on a short page versus a very long in-depth research page duh you make so much more money that way and so like our defensive moat is that we do this work that very few people know how to do or want to do and they don't look at scale i look at scale as in terms of the quality of the work they look at scale in terms of the quantity of the work and that's a defensive moat for me. And like three years ago, everyone was trying to do these little experiments to copy us. For example, we mastered how to update our articles, meaning when do you update them, what time of year, how often, and how do you spot the need for an update if it's news-based, not just time-based. And so we have all these in processes that keep our articles useful. One company that competed with us and tried to copy what we did instead of partnering with us, which we offered, we said, use our stuff. But, you know, they wanted to do their own thing. I respect that. They wrote an article that was out of date within two days because a new, like, phone came out. We literally watched and counted. And for 45 days later, they never updated the article with the new information. So, like, that's the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that we do that is a really good competitive moment. And do you think the folks who did what you're talking about thought, oh, we should have figured out how to update them more quickly? They go, you know what, actually it's pretty efficient because we'll get to it eventually. It's not costing us anything. This is what I found. I yeah. found that you have business people that push this kind of stuff and then you get horrible, horrible 
products with people who are not really bought in. And then you have editors who push it where the business people don't, aren't bought in. And then what happens is they don't get the support to spend 100 hours on an article or whatever. Like for some reason, our culture is just so that the writers and the business side are just like, let's do awesome stuff and then we'll figure out how to make money later from it. And it's a cultural thing and it's a coordination thing. And I feel like people could catch up to us in like five years plus, but we have a very strong lead and we're very focused on what we do. And that's coming around in the product side of things too, where we're really focusing on some cool stuff that I probably shouldn't talk about. All right, so you're not going to tell me what's going to happen in the future. I want to talk about the past. One second, we're going to listen to a word from our sponsor because that's how we make money with this free product. Okay, cool. We'll be right back. This interview is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is a new kind of finance company that's helping people get out of student debt faster. Refinancing student loans with SoFi saves members, on average, $19,000. SoFi even partners with companies to help pay off employees' loans. That is a pretty cool benefit. See how SoFi can help you out at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Hey, Brian. We're back. One of the reasons I brought you on is because I think your story is really interesting. You built a business from scratch on your own without VC funding. It worked. But even before we get to that point, how did you get into writing and technology? Where did you start out? I got my start in San Francisco where I'd always dreamed about writing for Wired Magazine. But what happened instead was I got this job at this small consulting company. And it took me six months to find the job because I was picky. This, right is, this of, is right out of college? Right out of college. What was your degree in? It's a long story, but I did. I went from journalism to English to computer science to business because I fell in love with a woman who was an artist and she was like, I need to probably be with someone who could support me. And I instantly transferred to business because I was an idiot. I'm <laughs> a pretty impulsive person, by the way. So um, I hated business school, but somehow I soaked up stuff that became useful like 15, 20 years later. So you, you dabble in a bunch of different things. You end up at something that's not wired. But you, this, this oh, is yeah. when? This Let is the 90s? Let the story. Yeah. Oh, this is uh, 2000. And the bubble burst, and I had no skills, and there were no jobs. And I went to work at my boxing gym. So I went to work at this boxing gym, mopping the floors. It's a Thai boxing gym. And all the champions from Bangkok would come to San Francisco and open this gym. And mopping the floors. And after three years, I was doing like teaching, and I was ex- doing exhibitions with like people who would become like state champs. And I was getting punched in the face every day. And I had like a nosebleed every day for like three years. So I did that. And one of the members at the gym was an editor-in-chief of a small computer magazine, which is called Maximum PC. And I got an internship there and I just hustled. Like East Coast martial arts boxing hustle. So you're mopping the Florida boxing gym, fighting, and interning, training, and then you yeah. say, hey, I'd like to maybe not do this the rest of my life. Yeah, and, and the writing was on the wall because fighters don't age gracefully. And um, not like editors do either, but that's a different story. The thing is, I got to shout him out. I blew my first writing assignment, which was my test assignment because I was so nervous, like writer's block. And he gave me another chance and then I got the job and I just worked so hard. One issue, I had more text than the other four editors combined. Because so you're, you're writing what kind of stuff? Like I would build like a water-cooled PC, which is like a hardcore gaming PC, like tweaker system. And then I would review them. So you're a full-on gadget nerd writing about gadgets. That's your first real job yeah. out of the boxing gym. Yeah, and I only had to work 10 hours a week, but I ended up working like 50, 60, because it was like knowledge, 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 knowledge. Applied for a wired internship, didn't get it. Applied again, didn't get it. Third time, I got it. You know, it was just like persistence. And then I got And what there. was attractive about Wired? This is this is. I wanted to write narratives. I didn't really want to write about technology. And so like, Wired was a, a still is, then feature magazine that did gadget nerd stuff, but also long-form pieces, and that appealed to you. Yeah, I mean, Wired was my dream. It was amazing. So, um, 
you know, it was me and 16 senior editors at Wired, so I really just didn't get many of my ideas through. And they weren't all good ideas. They were pretty bad ideas. But, you know, like, I learned that I needed to go somewhere where I needed to be able to call the shots and learn by making mistakes. And that was the opportunity that Nick Denton gave me, working and being the editor-in-chief at Gizmodo, which is a Gawker Media technology site. Now, Nick Denton, CEO of Gawker Media, did, did Gizmodo, so it's best known for Gawker, but had, especially back in the day, big sites like Gizmodo. Well, it wasn't big back then because, I mean, nobody, I don't think, I, I must have been the first person to leave Condé Nast salary job, which, you know, that's hard to get. And go to a blog. Did Gizmodo like exist, or did you create it? No, you didn't create it. I right? didn't create it, but I feel like I put it on the map. And this, so there were two big at the time gadget sites, Gizmodo and Engadget. And you guys both. This was sort of in the real, sort of on the way up to the iPhone, right? You guys were hardcore gadget freak blogs, right? You would do unboxing photos and videos. We just got the new Dell whatever. We're opening up the box. This is what the packaging looks like. That that was your era. We did that. And because it's inherently a boring topic, we threw in a lot of like Hunter S. Thompson sort of be part of the narrative gonzo stuff. So we got banned from, you know, CES one year because we turned off all the TVs as a statement on like, there's too much noise here. So Um, I want to, but I just wanted to, because this is when I, I started becoming aware of what you guys were doing. It was really interesting because prior to Gizmodo and Gadget, if you were a gadget nerd, right, you went to Maximum PC or Popular Science. I'm trying to think, where would you sate this stuff? If you were interested in this stuff prior to Gizmodo and Gadget, you were reading it where? I think you read it at the trades. So the like trades. the CNETs, you know, consumer right. so reports. It's boring, staid publications. And then you guys had this sort of rock and roll, rebellious attitude towards, yeah, it was towards like, the same stuff. But you still like, loved it. Uh, it was like lifestyle. I mean, we loved it and we hated it. I think the key is I also hate this stuff. You know, I really don't care about a lot of it. Yeah. But it's service. I'm good at it. I understand it. But I also don't care. But you wrote with passion, right? And then you would then you would get upset, and like you said, you'd go to CES and you bought a little gadget that turned off all the screens at CES, and you walked around and did that, and then you were kicked out, right? Yeah, kicked out, banned. So you guys were were adopted this sort of bad boy pose. I wouldn't say adopted. I think it's pretty natural when you like really hate. You know, it's a stressful job. I'm not gonna lie. Like writing about things you don't care about that are like highly consumeristic at like a news pace. When people they just need to know what to get, it's like it just seems like it's a bunch of noise. So you're but faster than a news pace, right? Because that was the whole point. This was the era when you, if you worked at Gawker Media or any other blog, you were supposed to write twelve posts a day. Maybe we're going back to that too. Yeah, it was crazy. That's how you gained forty pounds. So you did that for how long? Five years, half a decade. Which is, I don't think it's a title anymore. But back then, that was like an endurance title. I had like an endurance title for being a Gawker. I didn't get a silver pen or anything. So there, were, there aren't old people to this day at Gawker Media, but it wasn't, it's not something you do for a lifestyle choice. So at some point you go, all right, I'm going to go do this, but I'm going to do it at a more relaxed pace somewhere else. What was your thought? Why, why did you, what did you want to do when you left? Well, I always had this idea for a list of things because um, I would be, say I just meet people in the world during this job and I'd be like, oh, I run this gadget blog. It's one of the biggest in the world now. They'd be like, news people would be like talking about rumors and all the news stuff. People who didn't care like say like your average customer at Best Buy who wants a TV for the Super Bowl, they'd be like, oh, that's what you do? Can you tell me what to get? And I would be like, oh, I don't actually know which one to get. And I don't think anyone else does either in news. And I was like, this is pretty absurd that that's not top of mind. Because the whole point of these trade verticals is like at the heart of its service. On the business side, it's like commercialism. But there's no reason to read these things unless you like want to know. The other thing that's really weird is like, we don't take a trade approach. We are really, it's this weird dichotomy between 
being obsessed with the topic, but also not being beholden to it and blinded by it. You're at a remove. You're at, you're not you're not getting ad money from these guys. You're talking about the new business now, right? They're not advertising with you. They're not giving you access to the device. Some people do advertise, but it's a minor part of our okay. business. You know. But so we'll talk about Apple in a second too. But you don't need to worry about whether or not Apple gives you the new iPhone to review because you're going to eventually go and buy the new iPhone and review it, whether or not Apple gives it to you in advance. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to get it early, as always. But um, you know what we found is, like, people don't need advice on iPhones. They're going to buy them no matter what. So, like, we focus on where we can make a difference. It's a very academic model. Like, you reference academic papers, and then you do stuff that moves the whole body of knowledge in the world forward. So was there an epiphany? Like, oh, I'm going to go create. It's one thing to say that would be a nice service to create to tell people what kind of TV to buy at Best Buy. It's another thing to go say, I'm going to quit this job and go start this new thing. Well, I left Gizmodo and I was really burnt out, uh, as you could imagine, and unhealthy. And I just picked the things that I wanted to continue in my next gig and the things I didn't want to continue. And you, I, I'm really purposeful about designing my life and I was purposeful about designing this thing. And I think there's a couple strengths that I think, generally I don't think media people, journalists are going to make very good CEOs. But if they do, there's a couple things they should keep in mind as their strengths. And one of them is storytelling, the narrative. The other thing is a bullshit meter that's really sensitive. So you have. What do you to, mean? What do you mean? Storytelling the narrative. You know, it's just like when you try to explain to people who you are or what you're doing. You mean when you're trying to recruit someone or raise money or sell something? Storytelling to is just something that like marketers talk about being important, but it's not at the core of what they are and who they are. And so, I found like the narrative of Wirecutter finding something that I believe in enough to put my time towards. It's given us a very like we're very like mission based culture and that's made everything so much easier because a lot of these new companies the mission is business it's like we want to get as many eyeballs as possible it's not like this is what we believe and this is what we're going to write about and this is how we're going to help so you're talking about how you communicate that idea to your employees to people you'd like to be your employees to an investor if you're going to take on money yeah and i like to operate at the like philosophical level of things and then let it become more tactical with my teams but i just think thinking about things in the right order and the right right priorities is just why we're different. And the bullshit detector, that part seems pretty self-evident. Yeah, like you, I can't, I could never. So if I can't, then I have to find something that I believe in enough. And if I believe in it as like a former, you know, cynical gawker person, then then I think it's worth believing for other people too. So you go off, you quit Gizmodo, you build this thing. You're running this out of your condo in Hawaii? I was on my friend's couch and my friend really helped me out and he, he likes helping people, so now I buy him dinner every time, and he hates it, and I love that because I really owe him. Like he took care of me, and I put that energy. Your friend's couch is in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah, because I couldn't really afford to like rent my own place. You knew you wanted to live months. in Hawaii. Yeah, I'm a I'm a surfer. I'm kind of addicted. I'm not a good surfer. I actually got a tattoo recently that says I'm a kook, which is the term for a bad surfer. So it's very liberating to just know you're bad at something and, and love it. And I think Wirecutter was like that too in the beginning. Like I was like, I don't know how to do this, but it's really awesome. I have to do it. So you're on your friend's couch in Hawaii, and then you start a site from there. I didn't start it from there, but that's when it blossomed. I went from being burnt out to being like, there's like energy in this. It started to become really fun. And we'll fast forward. Now there's 60 people? About 60 people. You're still running it day to day? Not really. So here's the thing. Without investors, I don't have investors right? Yeah. I don't have a board. You bootstrap this. You build the business like, without anybody else. And I'm good at delegating. I'm like, I found people who are better than I am at a lot of stuff. So we're at the phase in the company where I kind of just make sure things are on track and I'm there when they need me, but they often don't need me. It's running. 
what point in the business did you go, oh, I don't have to touch it every single minute? Last month. Okay, so it took you five years to get there. Four and a half. You're cruising now, though. I'm waiting for my chance to jump in and provide further service to the team. But this is one of the reasons that it's, it's fun to talk to you and fun to think about what you built, right? Because even while you got up to this point, and I really don't believe that you're not obsessing over your business every second, but even if you got to this point where you don't have to, you're in Hawaii, you're building this business, you're also surfing how many hours a day? I have this watch that's really good. It's got GPS. It tells you how many waves you've caught. And since last June, which is about 10 months, I've caught about 1,000 waves. I've done like 90 days in the water. And I'm gone a third of the time, so that's about every other day I'm in Hawaii. So every other, average, every other day you're, you're on your surfboard. Yeah, and it's on Hawaii. average like four waves a day or something like that. Life's good. We should all do this. It's good. Do you it's, think, I mean, do you think that your story is replicable for other people? Forget the specific business model. Do you think that lots of other people can go create their own relatively successful, so successful media businesses on their own? Or do you think this is a once-in-a-lifetime once thing? That's a trick question because Probably. I think that I used to assume that everyone was like me and that I was like everyone else. And there's this like balance between knowing that you're a freak, but also not being like too distanced from other people. Cause at the heart, all people are really similar. So like, all I know is that I see things really differently than almost anyone I've ever met. So I don't know. I can't answer that question. I, I think people should try, but most people don't try. And then people should think about things thoroughly in a way that gets them to where they want to go, but I don't know if people have that. I don't know if they can do it. All right. I, it, was just, a, it was a trick question. That's a the weird answer. The answer is no. If, if everyone could do it, then I'd have everyone on my podcast. But I think everyone can Brian do it, but I don't think everyone believes they can do it. I want to ask you about the iPhone again and Steve Jobs We're going to go back in history even more? Yeah, it's okay. a great story because I know it and you know it. Promise me we'll only spend a minute on this. Maybe two. Okay. Yeah, it's because it's one of the all-time great blogging, journalism, Apple stories. You guys got your hands on, was the iPhone 4, the 4S? Something like that. You know exactly what it was. I don't remember the model. It was probably the iPhone 4. It was the sharp-edged one that was really pretty. Some guy finds it at a bar, says, I found it at a bar. They reach out to you guys, I guess, directly. You end up, did you pay for it? I'll give you the narrative. So a couple months before, we were just masters at blogging, and we were like, what could actually move the needle? And we were like, it's the Steve Jobs peak era of Apple, peak era of interest in the iPhone. Yeah. And we come up with a protocol because we had spare cycles to plan, and planning is speed sometimes, as long as you don't get trapped by it. If we ever came upon like a prototype of some hot gadget, what would we do? And we decided, like, we looked into the legal aspects of it. Like, if you buy stolen property and then you find out it's stolen property, you're fine as long as you return it. That's one thing that we believed and we found was legally true so we were very we had a lot of expedience and not a lot of wavering when it came to this situation where this person came to a number of publications i think they went to wired and so you have prepped for this scenario this is like you've trained yeah. for what happens if the new iphone or something akin Everything to that shows down up to how we would get a bag of cash real quick and we did this and then we found out it really was an apple phone what, what did you pay for it I think it was like five grand or something. Someone got five grand for getting this phone to you. Yeah, because we didn't know it was real yet. And we're like, nah, maybe and, there's more. And you're, you're Brian Lamb, so you're low-key about this. But this is the holy grail. This is like, yeah, like Indiana Jones, bigger. Raiders of the Lost Ark, you found the thing. Yes. Yeah, I'd agree. It's like if you're a gadget blogger and you're offered a scoop on the next iPhone in your hand before anyone's even seen it, if you don't take that 
who are you? Why are you in this field? And You're, again, this is, I mean, because it'd be a big deal today, but back in 2010, this nine. is it's even much more of a big deal, right? Because the next iPhone probably is going to look like the new iPhone. There's less interest in it. But at the time, red hot interest, you guys get it. How do you figure out that it's the real thing? There's this essence of, you can just tell, it's like not something that anyone was doing design at that level, which is a very soft thing. But we did get confirmation when Steve Jobs called me. But, but before you get to that, so, so you look at it and you go, this is just, I can hold it in my hand, this is the real thing. I think it's the real thing. And then you publish a post that says that, right? Here's the new iPhone 4. There might have been some hedging in there, but it's like blogger type hedging where it's like teasing you and sure, but then a little bit of safety in the lead, you know? And what is the reaction at, at Gawker, at, at Gizmodo? Are you guys... I mean, the story went bigger than I think any tech blog story ever. And you know that going in or are you hoping that's what's going to happen? We knew. And then it also came true. You have a good instinct right. for traffic. So we you. have international news. We're holding it here. It's in the yeah. shape of an iPhone. We paid $5,000 for it. You publish it, boom. And then you hear from Steve Jobs immediately? Yeah, you know, I was actually on sabbatical. And I was like just getting back from water time. Like I think I was swimming or surfing or something. And he calls and I'm like, I got to call you back so I can put some pants on basically. Steve Jobs calls. Yeah. He's, Hello, this is Steve Jobs? Yeah, he goes, hi, this is Steve Jobs. I really want my phone back. And I'm like, I can talk about that, but I got to call you back. Because you got to put pants on? I literally had to put pants on. <laughs> you literally caught me with my pants down. And then do you call the Gawker folks before you call him back? Yeah, I call our team. You know, I called Nick and we, we talk about it. So you get back on the phone with Steve and say, great. It's going, it goes back and forth a little bit. And I have, I have notes. I think I, I can send them to you, actually. You publish them. We can find it. But again, I didn't I, publish them. You can have them, though. Didn't you? You wrote about this, I right? wrote about them, but I have some, I have some private send, notes. All right. Send us the private notes. Yeah. So, but again, this is like Barack Obama calling us and saying, I would like the thing back. Now, let's get a little context. It's not a Barack Obama. It's That's, pretty close at the time. I guess. Barack Obama is like Because there is, no equivalent, there is no equivalent of Steve Jobs today. Yeah, there isn't. He is, and especially for someone who's a technology blogger, right? He's he's the center. Everything revolves around. You know what's him. really funny is like he went from like good cop to bad cop, where he like threatened to throw me in jail, and and it was like, it was literally reading all the books on Apple, every single book, like really prepared me for what he was going to do. It's pretty amazing. Like, like I never thought I was studying for that situation, but I was. So he says, give me my iPhone back, and you say, yes, but, but there were conditions, right? You, you have to claim to... it, because that's what the law says. And he goes, I don't want to claim it, because it's going to cost us a lot of money. Because we... you, you, you wanted him basically to say, it is mine, thus certifying that it's the iPhone 4, and your scoop gets even better. Yes, exactly. And to go back and forth, he doesn't want to do it, eventually it does go back to him, right? Yeah, they get it back yeah. eventually. They get it back, but you've written a million stories about it. He is livid, he is livid for months You know, he afterwards. wasn't mad until... We told him what to do, because I don't think he's used to that. That was literally at the beginning. He was like, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at this engineer. He was like being good cop, but he really didn't like losing that little, like, that mini chess game. You know, in the grand scheme, like a guy who tells the telecoms to give flat mobile internet or what he's done with music and movie people. And, you know, like, they're used to shifting industries, and they these, like, snot-nosed punks. And then it's, of, it's stuck with him for months and maybe longer, right? Because I remember, the, the, and this is in a movie too, but there's, uh, he's interviewed by Walton Kara at a D-Con. Yeah, and he called out Gizmodo as thieves. But they, they say, why are you still angry? Why are you still going after this blog? This is after the fact. Mm -hmm. And he says, if I didn't go after them, Apple wouldn't be what it is. It's an amazing thing to say about you. I Brian think it's Lamb. BS. I mean, frankly, I just think he wasn't used to being told what to do, and it really stung him personally. Because it's a small issue. Actually, we probably helped 
the phones get more publicity in the end. I, I don't. Anyway, it's all old news. It's so. all old news. It's you know that whenever someone like me is going to interview you, we're going to ask about it. It's not that burdensome, right? It's a great story. It's okay, but I don't like looking back because the future is really much more exciting to me. All right, talk about the future. What happens next? What happens next? Um, you know, we just keep growing, and we don't do it in a way that's expecting exponential growth. We've always grown very TikTok, TikTok, and that's allowed us to not have to expand to things that are going to just goose growth. You're talking about adding different categories, right? You do gadgets, you do home gadgets. I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise, although we've never said it publicly. Uh, you know, we want to do more verticals, but so, we want to do them very mindfully. Like not some verticals don't need a best. Some verticals need a totally different treatment, maybe a narrative treatment. So we're just going to do whatever medium and delivery mechanism helps people be actionable and, you know, reduce their stress, reduce their time and figuring out what they need. I saw you once and there were drinks involved. You said, we're going to do fashion, man. We're going oh, we're we're to talk we're about gonna, that. We're going to okay. help guys buy better suits. You're right, not going to do that. You're not going to do that, right? You know what? I think that there's a way to do it that I don't want to disclose that would be really smart and helpful to guys like you and me. Oh, I don't think I'm going to help you at all. No, I think, I think you would look at this and be like, I'm not going to waste time looking at this stuff. I, I'm going to just get some stuff here. But it wouldn't be for everything because it's not the same... That topic needs a vastly different treatment, but I have it in mind, and no one's doing it that way, and it's going to be great. All right, so you're not letting go of that one. I can't talk you out of it. I mean, we're going to You do, built a business, I haven't, so maybe you're doing the right thing. We're not going to do it because it's a business opportunity. We're going to do it because we think we can be helpful. I like that. And there's also a business opportunity. Okay, so there is a business opportunity. Yeah, there has to be. Otherwise, you can't, you know, you can't survive. It's a, but the business, serves, the business serves what we're trying to build. And I think um, when I was interviewing for our first business people, nobody understood that. Everyone under, thinks like the point of, a, like, what do you think the point of our existence is? It's like to hit this, like, what's our business objective? It's like to hit this level of scale or profitability or, you know, these very important metrics that are metrics. They're not the point. It's not the point. Like the point isn't to live till 80. It's to have a good life until 80, right? So interviewing business people, I always had this trap and I went through so many. I was like, how big do you think we can get? And they're like, Oh, I think you can be this. And the number didn't matter. I didn't even listen to the number sometimes. And then I was like, oh, really? How do you think we'll get there? And they'd have all these ridiculous answers. And I loved just hearing. I mean, like, it's unbelievable how many, how many people don't get it on the business side of media. It's unbelievable. And they're so good at saying they do. And it's just so disappointing that they're not. What's the thing they don't get? Make money. They don't get that they should make money, but it should be to make some really cool editorial mission happen. And if you don't, that's, it becomes a hollow thing where you're chasing trend to trend to follow dollars. But we have a really good guy who's like, his answer was, I'm not sure, I need to know more. But um, the I don't know is interesting to me because it's, rather than being so arrogant and knowing everything, he was like humble enough to say, I don't know your business well enough because it's a very strange business. I yeah, there's a more. bunch of folks who think the exact opposite of what you do. They think you're deluded. Someone like you is deluded. They think that actually what you want to do is have the fewest number of editorial people spending the least amount of time creating content and then blow that up across as many eyeballs as you can while hoping to sort of outrun the declining CPM. There's people in this town who, who are smart. They're German. They have MBAs and, and they're reaching a lot of people. I guess there's probably room in the world for both of you guys. We've had some people who have like the exact opposite tack that we do, who do like this sort of business, and they are really proud that they're much bigger, and they are. And I'm like, as a CEO, why are you more proud that you make more money now? But at the same time, their people are fleeing. We've had people from this particular company tell us that they're business people there. They wouldn't trust their own content to buy things from. 
And it's like, wow, you're peddling this on the world. And, and then you know what? Within a couple years later, like they've started to crater. They've started to just eat shit because Google smells bad content. Readers smell bad content. The business people there don't believe in it. Facebook will figure it out eventually. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I don't try to be smarter than Google and Facebook. I just try to do the stuff they want, which is awesome stuff. So it's just really amazing to see these businesses think that way. It just seems so hollow and short term. I don't know. Brian Lamp, go keep making awesome stuff. Go back to Hawaii. It's miserable here in New York. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you guys like listening to this, that awesome free content, I hope you did. Um, You can get more of it. You can subscribe to us over on iTunes. You can now get us on Google Play. While you're there, you should review it. Give us some stars. That'd be good. You subscribe. Um, if you like all of that, there's even more stuff from Rico. You can get Kara Swisher Show, Rico Deco, Lauren Goods, Too Embarrassed to Ask. All of this is brought to you by our awesome sponsors and digital media, which makes all this stuff possible. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brian. See you guys next week. <laughs>